Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is uh, hosting this uh, forum today. Um, um, here at the Cato Institute, we try to keep our eyes open for uh, people coming along, especially uh, young uh, scholars uh, who may be saying things that uh, uh, we find uh, particularly attractive. And we ask our adjunct scholars and uh, our senior fellows who are not in residence to keep their eyes open as well. And I'm happy to say that one of our senior fellows, uh, Professor Randy Barnett, who teaches now at uh, Georgetown Law Center, uh, brought to our attention uh, a young woman just recently uh, by the name of Elizabeth Price Foley and said that uh, she has a new book coming out that he had written a blurb for and he thought we ought to take a look at it. So um, I uh, got in contact with her, or she got in contact with me through Randy, and uh, brought the book to our attention. And it is indeed something that is of substantial interest to it, not uh, least from its title, Liberty for All, Reclaiming Individual Privacy in a New Era of Public Morality, uh, that has just come out. Um, this month from uh, Yale University Press, which is available outside for you to purchase at a discount and which Elizabeth will uh, be happy to sign for you. Uh, in the book, uh, Elizabeth focuses mainly on the uh, personal uh, liberty side of things as opposed to economic liberty and other uh, forms of that, uh, of, of liberty, uh, First Amendment and, and so forth. Um, and that's because she has spent uh, her career in large measure um, in the area of um, um, medical um, and uh, uh, health-related uh, er uh, issues. Um, she is the prof a professor of law and a founding faculty member uh, of Florida International University a College of Law, a newly created public law school located in Miami. Uh, she teaches courses in constitutional law, federal courts, health care law, bioethics, and civil procedure. Prior to joining uh, Florida International, uh, she was a professor of law at Michigan State University, College of Law, and an adjunct professor uh, at the uh, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Uh, she served as a law clerk to the Honorable Carolyn uh, Deneen King of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit uh, and spent several years on Capitol Hill as a health policy advisor serving as senior legislative aide to U.S. Congressman um, now U.S. Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, and she was a legislative aide for the D.C. Office of Health Insurance Plan of Greater New York and a legislative aide for U.S. Congressman uh, Michael um, Andrews. Um, she, um, in, in 2005, she was appointed to serve as a member of the Committee on um, Embryonic Stem Cell uh, Guidelines of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies of Sciences. She's a uh, summa cum laude graduate of the University of Tennessee uh, College of Law, uh, where she was article editors, articles editor of the Tennessee Law Review. And before that, she received her BA in history from Emory University, and after that, her LLM from Harvard Law School. She will speak about her book uh, for about 20, 25 minutes, and then Bill Galston, whom I will introduce before he speaks, will comment after which uh, Professor Foley will uh, respond briefly, and then we'll open up to questions from the floor. And after that, we'll have lunch upstairs. So please welcome uh, Professor Foley. Thanks very much. Uh, 
First of all, let me thank Cato Institute for sponsoring the book forum. Uh, I've been an admirer of Cato Institute since I worked on the Hill in the late 80s and early 90s, so it's a particular honor for me. Uh, thanks, obviously, to Roger for inviting me uh, here and for organizing the book forum. And obviously, thank you very much to Bill Galston for agreeing to come down and comment on my book. Uh, but I want to thank you as well for coming out on a Halloween day, uh, Halloween, uh, a holiday, uh, to spend some time uh, listening and participating. So thanks much. The question that the book attempt, attempts to answer is a relatively or deceptively simple one. What's the relationship between law and morality? It's an emotionally charged but fundamental issue in American law. It's one that is surprisingly considered to be unanswered 200 years after ratification of our Constitution. And you may recall that there were some rather famous debates back in the mid-20th century between H.L.A. Hart and Patrick Devlin on the issue. And the general consensus, at least amongst intellectuals, is that Hart, who advocated that there was a distinction between law and morality, had the better argument. But despite this, over a half century later, Hart's intellectual victory hasn't translated into any kind of actual change in the way that we look at law and morality. Indeed, as a professor of constitutional law, I can testify with confidence that the idea of law as being distinct from morality has never really uh, been embraced by Americans and not even college-educated adults. They haven't even uh, uh, entertained the possibility, and I think we take for granted today that law and morality are inextricably intertwined, and so they have actually become. The common belief, even among lawyers, is that law and morality are one and the same, and this leads us to the conclusion, then, that it's proper to exercise governmental power, to restrain individual liberty based on a majority's belief that something is immoral. And we therefore have a cornucopia of morality-driven laws, things that prohibit uh, uh, things such as pro prohibitions on fortune-telling, gambling, working or buying merchandise on Sunday, selling sex toys, using indecent language, and even recently enacted in Chicago, serving foie gras in a restaurant. But of course, the desire to exercise governmental power to stop immoral acts, it doesn't end with these relatively picayune laws. It underlies the most contentious constitutional issues of the day, including abortion, same-sex marriage, physician-assisted suicide, stem cell research, cloning, and even anti-drug laws. The reason why these issues are so contentious is precisely because of this deeply-seated belief that we, the people, have a right, as a majority, to enact laws that execute our majoritarian morality and punish those in the minority who don't share these values. Indeed, this has become the position of so-called originalists. Unfortunately, originalism has become a shibboleth that's been hijacked by the far right and defined very narrowly to the extent that virtually no one who disagrees with any portion of the far right's agenda feels really comfortable trying the originalist label on. Perhaps the most disturbing hallmark of modern self-proclaimed originalist, and this is most evident in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on substantive uh, due process, is an odd thought process that equates a history of prohibition of certain activities with an indication that the framers must not have intended to give constitutional protection to those activities. 
there have been laws prohibiting X for many years, the originalist will say. And indeed, those laws may have existed at the time the Constitution was ratified. So the framers must not have intended to elevate X to a constitutionally protected status. So there have been laws prohibiting things like abortion, sodomy, physician-assisted suicide, suicide generally, for many years. So the originalist today, modern originalist, will say there cannot be an originalist way to extend constitutional protection to such things. I find this logic to be wanting at best. The chief problem with this dominant version of originalism, its obsession with whether a given activity is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, is that it takes the existence of ordinary state laws restricting liberty and assumes that the framers of our Constitution, who were an entirely different body of men, by the way, must have intended to endorse these existing state laws whenever the constitutional text did not specifically condemn them. The Constitution does not, for example, specifically condemn laws prohibiting a suicide, suicide, adultery, abortion, or limiting marriage to one man and one woman. So the framers must have intended to allow their continuance. This is the logic anyway. Of course, this is preposterous. As Chief Justice Marshall said in Marbury versus Madison, we must not forget that it's a constitution that we are expounding. So it just makes sense that the framers would not mention any specific state laws that were objectionable to them, that they would instead draft language setting forth broad principles that could apply in many situations, including situations not yet foreseen. The truth is that the American colonies that later became states inherited their laws from England, where legislative power was plenary and where there was no separation of church and state, quite the contrary. So it shouldn't be surprising that at the time of the ratification of the Constitution in 1789 and then the Bill of Rights in 1791, there were many, many laws on the books that were the product of British governmental norms that were clearly antithetical to the principles of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that had just been ratified. The fact that neither our Constitution nor Bill of Rights specifically said anything very specific about this plethora of liberty-restricting British laws shouldn't be surprising, and it certainly should not lead us to conclude that the framers acquiesced to any of them. Indeed, after ratification of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the United States began a very slow and often painful process of reviewing the propriety of these laws in relation to the principles contained in our Constitution and Bill of Rights. And unfortunately, the Court's hesitancy to declare the Bill of Rights applicable to the states beginning with Barron versus Baltimore in 1833, and then significantly after ratification of the 14th Amendment with the slaughterhouse cases, has meant that this process of determining whether these long-standing state laws are harmonious with constitutional principles was delayed really until the 20th century with the development of the so-called selective incorporation doctrine. All of this thinking leads me to this point. The historical evidence or non-evidence of statutes dealing with X are simply not relevant to an originalist analysis. What is relevant then? The debates and discussions 
of the framers of the Constitution itself. What did the framers say to each other? What did they say to the people about the nature of our unique government? What principles underlie our unique version of government that can, in fact, somehow be disinterred? Indeed, I think one of the primary reasons why Hart's intellectual victory hasn't sort of trickled down to common understanding is that his defense of the separation between law and morality was based purely on philosophical arguments, which is understandable given the fact that he's a philosopher, rather than arguments about the actual state of law. Hart did not, in other words, make any kind of serious attempt to show that there was any actual limitation on majoritarian control. Indeed, given the fact that he was British, as was Devlin, he couldn't have done so. The British system of government, despite uh, its common law ancestry with our own, is fundamentally different from ours. Most significantly, it embraces the primacy of the legislative branch, Parliament. And indeed, Britain does not recognize any individual rights that are immune from majoritarian control. There is no written constitution in Britain, and of course any rights one may have there, including in the Magna Carta or elsewhere, is subject to plenary control by Parliament with very little judicial control or oversight. So the embrace by Americans of a strong majority rules position, which is what most self-proclaimed originalists adhere to today, is rather odd. And it evinces, I think, a significant lack of understanding of or appreciation for the unique nature of American government. It assumes far too much about the proper scope of legislative power, and it assumes far too little about the proper judicial role in protecting individual liberty against the majority. Specifically, the modern American version of majority rules government assumes two things. Number one, that le the legislative power is plenary in the absence of some specifically enumerated constitutional limitation. And number two, that certain express constitutional limitations, most notably the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, are mere truisms that are devoid of any substantive meaning. The American embrace of the majority rules position not only drives the enactment of all of these majority-based morality-based laws, but it also underlies the cry of judicial activism when these morality-based laws are deemed unconstitutional by our courts. My book, therefore, sets out to do what H.L.A. Hart did not do and really could not do, given the fact that he was British. Namely, I've endeavored to discern from an originalist perspective what the founding generation actually believed about the right and wrong uses of governmental power. I call this the morality of American law because it reveals that the founders had some distinctly different ideas about the proper role of both the legislature and the judicial, and the judicial branch than their British brethren. The morality of American law is based on two foundational principles that emerge from the historical sources. Principles, by the way, that were clearly embraced by both Federalists and Anti-Federalists alike. These twin principles set the American conception of government apart from all antecedent governments and indeed are the hallmarks of American law. And they are 
Number one, a belief in limited government. And number two, a belief in what I call residual individual sovereignty. In other words, a realization that beyond fulfilling its limited role, government has no legitimate power to act. First, let's take limited government. Most people toss around the phrase limited government, but very few ever attempt to define what they mean by it. The dominant political philosophy of the founding generation recognized that the purpose of government was to protect the life, liberty, and property of citizens. In this sense, governmental power was inherently designed to enhance the public welfare. But notice when I use this term, public welfare, it's not synonymous with government has the power to do anything it wants in the name of improving the public welfare which it's come to mean. Instead, it means that by protecting and enhancing our life, liberty, and property, the public welfare is necessarily improved. These terms, life, liberty, property, had relatively clear meanings to the founding generation, and they're very different from what they mean in modern times. Protecting our lives meant protecting us from acts that either actually result or reasonably threaten physical injury, cuts, bruises, broken bones, and, of course, death. So laws prohibiting assault, battery, rape, and murder are legitimate exercises of governmental power. Protecting our liberty meant protecting us from actual or reasonably threatened loss of physical locomotion or bodily control. Laws prohibiting kidnapping and false arrest are classic examples. Protecting our property meant protecting us from actual or reasonably threatened loss of value, possession, or peaceable enjoyment of one of the four types of property that were recognized by the founders. Real property, personal property, intellectual property, and reputational property. Examples of legitimately, legitimate property-protecting laws would include laws prohibiting larceny, embezzlement, trespassing, copyright infringement, and defamation. But notice what's not included in this laundry list of legitimate exercises of governmental power. Laws based solely on majoritarian morality. Though undoubtedly many of the laws <laughs> deemed legitimate under this rubric have a moral undertone. Prohibition on murder, for example. The morality is of a different sort than the majoritarian morality that fuels the debate about abortion and same-sex marriage today. Specifically, the morality that legitimates a prohibition on murder is, if you will, the morality of American law itself, which necessarily hinges on the application of a harm principle to distinct categories of harm, life, liberty, and property. The morality of American law, therefore, inherently incorporates a harm principle. The harm principle is not just a theoretical consideration. It was built into the structure of American law itself. This conclusion is further bolstered when one examines the other foundational principle of American law, which is what I call residual individual sovereignty. And contrary to orthodox constitutional theory, popular sovereignty was not just a collective concept, as in we the people collectively retain residual power and can wield it through the mechanism of voting. 
This collective dimension of popular sovereignty undoubtedly existed, and it is important. But there was an equally important individual dimension to popular sovereignty, namely the unique American idea that where governmental power ends, individual power sovereignty begins. And to confirm the existence of this concept of residual individual sovereignty, one need look no further than the Bill of Rights itself, which by its very nature was designed to demarcate zones of no power where government could not legitimately act. And because both Federalist and Anti-Federalist alike were deeply concerned that enumerating certain areas of individual sovereignty would imply that others did not exist, they, of course, ultimately agreed on what are perhaps the most important constitutional bookmarks of all, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. And if indeed the Ninth and Tenth Amendments were meant to provide important guideposts for understanding our limitations on governmental power, the question remains, of course, how to ascribe meaning to these. Judge and now Professor Robert Bork, in his famous Supreme Court confirmation hearings before the Senate, described the Ninth Amendment as an ink blot on the theory that no one could reasonably define the residual rights that it protects. And similarly, Raoul Berger has described the Ninth Amendment as, quote, a bottomless well in which the judiciary could dip for the formation of undreamed-of rights in their limitless discretion. These views of the Ninth Amendment and necessarily the portion of the Tenth Amendment that reserves unspecified powers to the people have, of course, been the dominant view. But are they historically correct or even pragmatically correct? How do we know, for example, what rights and powers are retained by or reserved to the people? The answer is surprisingly simple, and it has an intimate relationship to the other foundational constitutional principle of limited government. Specifically, if the message of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments is that there's some areas of sovereignty that are not given to government that instead belong to we the people, then we need to understand what sovereignty meant to the founding generation. What did it mean, in other words, to say that the people have sovereign rights and powers, even though we can't possibly attempt to enumerate all of them? The framers understood sovereignty to mean something rather specific. The concept of sovereignty had been extensively written about by writers who were very well known to the framers, writers like Vattel, Grotius, and Pufendorf, whose concepts later gave rise to modern international law. To these writers, saying that someone was sovereign meant that he possessed power to pursue his own desires, free from the control or intermeddling of other sovereigns. Sovereignty, in other words, was synonymous with liberty. But there was a universal acknowledgement that even sovereigns were constrained by one overarching principle. They had a duty to refrain from injuring other sovereigns unless in self-defense. If we the people as individuals are considered sovereign in those areas not explicitly ceded to our government, then the application of the understood law of sovereignty yields a pretty remarkable truth. 
that in defining the nature and extent of our residual sovereignty under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, we are once again confronted with the ineluctable application of a harm principle. As individual sovereigns, we are at liberty to do as we wish, to pursue our own individual vision of happiness, yet we must respect each other, our fellow sovereigns, by refraining from injuring each other's life, liberty, and property, except in self-defense. Understanding the true meaning of limited government and residual individual sovereignty thus yields a vision of government that's consistent with a much broader recognition of individual liberty than is currently recognized. The erosion of this morality of American law with its twin principles has been slow but steady. The morality of American law has been abandoned by all branches when certain exigencies and pragmatic considerations have arisen rather than taking the harder route of supermajoritarian Article V processes. A desire to avoid civil war followed closely by a desire to avoid another civil war, a desire to protect the United States from dangers of socialist and later communist thought, a desire to pull this country out of a severe economic depression, and today a desire to protect America from terrorism, have all provided occasions for abandoning the very principles that make our government unique. With each succeeding era of perceived need to depart from these principles, the farther they recede in our understanding or appreciation to the point where today I don't think most Americans know about them, not even law students. And this has been a constitutional revolution that Americans, for the most part, appear to have slept through. And, whilst, and unlike scholars like Bruce Ackerman, who attempt to legitimate this constitutional revolution by suggesting that they were implicitly endorsed, or at least acquiesced to, by we the people, my own belief is that Americans were not sophisticated enough during these periods of transformation to realize that the attainment of popularly desired ends came at a high price of permanent abandonment of our foundational principles. And when you do find that rare American who is aware of these silent constitutional changes, you will likely find a disturbing disrespect for the rule of law itself because they see that our most fundamental charter of government has been treated as little more than a naive declaration of impractical goals, malleable to the subjective preferences of those in power. The bottom line is that liberty is being consistently and significantly undervalued in a way that is contrary to the understandings of the founding generation. There is an originalist position that favors greater individual liberty and lesser governmental power. And it's high time that this originalist position be acknowledged and taught in our schools. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Foley, for that uh, spirited um, introduction to your book. Uh, and I should add that there are a good number of applications of that thesis uh, throughout the book. We're now going to hear from uh, William Galston um, <coughs> to uh, comment. Um, Bill is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, 
uh, where he's part of their governance studies program. Uh, prior to um, January of 2006, he was the Saul Stern Professor at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, uh, the director of the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy and founding director of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement, um, acronym CIRCLE. Uh, from 1993 until 1995, he served as Deputy Assistant to President Clinton for domestic policy. Uh, among his other political activities, uh, he was um, uh, Issues Director for Walter Mondale's presidential campaign, Senior Advisor to Al Gore's run for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1988, and again a Senior Advisor to Gore's presidential campaign in 1999 to 2000 from which we can infer that uh, his intellectual advice is probably a little better than his political advice. But um, he is the author of eight books, uh, more than 100 articles in the fields of political theory, public policy, and American politics. His most recent books are Liberal Pluralism from Cambridge in 2002, uh, The Practice of Liberal Pluralism from Cambridge in 2004, and Public Matters from Ro uh, Ro Roman and Littlefield in 2005. Uh, he is an expert uh, on family law, and he is here to comment on uh, Elizabeth's book. Please welcome Bill Galston. Well, thank you, Roger, for that mostly kind introduction. Uh, yeah. I couldn't resist your political life. I understand. On the other hand, you have no way of discerning whether my advice was taken. <laughs> <laughs> so it's open to me to say that when it was taken... Um, uh, I have no doubt that in this particular place and in this particular company, uh, Professor Foley has the rhetorical high ground, and I'll be charging up the hill, but I'll do my best. Uh, I, have only, uh, I have only 10 minutes, and therefore I will confine myself to four points, one general and three more specific. My general point has to do with what I see as a tendency in uh, contemporary constitutional law scholarship, and that is a persistent effort across the ideological and jurisprudential spectrum to read one's favorite philosophical or moral theory into the Constitution. Uh, and at this point, I typically repair to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' uh, well-known dissent in the Lochner case, where he commented, among other tart observations, and I quote, the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. And I would extend that remark to say that it doesn't enact John Locke's second treatise or John Stuart Mill's On Liberty either. Uh, the harm principle... I believe, is on all fours with laissez-faire, an important theory that lacks preeminent constitutional standing. I think it's essential to distinguish between a normative view of what the Constitution ought to be and an historically grounded understanding of what it meant and what it means. Uh, Professor Foley may be surprised to learn that I have a great deal of sympathy for her normative uh, orientation and for her view and Professor Barnett's view of the Ninth Amendment. My doubts 
intervene at the on the plane of history rather than rather than moral philosophy. Up, which brings me to my three specific historical points that I want to put on the table. First point of contestation. Uh, I believe that prior to the passage of the 14th Amendment, the Bill of Rights clearly did not apply to the states. Uh, as some of you know, when James Madison reluctantly drafted the Bill of Rights, uh, there weren't 10 items in that list. There were 12. 10 of them, in one version or another, made it into uh, the Bill of Rights. Uh, the other two did not. Let me read you one of the rejected uh, amendments. And I quote, no state shall violate the equal rights of conscience or the freedom of the press or the trial by jury in criminal cases. Madison introduced this amendment precisely to take the core of the Bill of Rights and make it applicable to the states. The House of Representatives went along with him. The Senate did not. And I urged the skeptics to read the debates uh, uh, on, on that amendment. You will see that the founding generation knew exactly what the issue was and specifically expressly declined to extend the protection of the Bill of Rights uh, to the states. Uh, Professor Foley doesn't much like Chief Justice Marshall's uh, opinion in Barron v. Baltimore, which held that the Fifth Amendment, and by extension the Bill of Rights, represented limitations on the power of the federal government, not of the states. Whatever some random state courts may have thought, however, Marshall, I believe, was only stating the common sense of the matter at the time. Second point of, con uh, second point of contestation, unlike Professor Foley, I do not believe the historical evidence will sustain the proposition that the state constitutions rested on the same philosophical premises as the federal constitution, whatever those premises may be. Uh, uh, let me confine myself to the kind of historical evidence that Professor Foley believes is relevant to this discussion, namely the members of the founding generation. One of the ablest ratifier, one of, one of the ratifiers who is among the ablest constitutional lawyers of this period was James Wilson. And here's what Wilson had to say during the Pennsylvania ratification debate. And I quote, while in the states the people had invested their representatives with every right and authority which they did not in explicit terms reserve, in the proposed federal constitution, everything which is not given is reserved. So two opposed standings for the theory of residual sovereignty, which Wilson applies to the federal, uh, federal constitution but declines to apply to the states. And Wilson's position on this matter was far from idiosyncratic. Uh, the government of the United States was one thing, the governments of the 13 states, quite another. Six, as you know, still had state-supported churches in 1789. Four others excluded non-Christians or non-Protestants from public office, while, of course, the federal constitution insisted in firm 
uh, explicit terms that no religious test shall ever be applied. It is against this backdrop that the First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That is to say, Congress may not tamper with state establishments. That's not the only thing those words mean, but that was the principal thrust of, of those words. And to illustrate why those words were there and why they were so important, cons consider this language from Article Three of the Massachusetts Constitution. I want you to listen carefully to the tone and temper of this language. As the happiness of a people and the good order and preservation of civil government essentially depend upon piety, religion, and morality, and as these cannot be generally diffused through a community except by the institution of the public worship of God, and of public instructions in piety, religion, and morality, therefore, to promote their happiness and secure the good order and preservation of their government, the people of this commonwealth have a right to invest their legislature with power to authorize and require, and the legislature shall from time to time authorize and require the several towns, parishes, precincts, and other bodies politic to make suitable provision at their own expense for the institution of the public worship of God and for the support and maintenance of public Protestant teachers of piety, religion, and morality. That was one of the many state constitutional provisions that the First Amendment was designed to protect. Uh, here, is my, here, here is the third historical point that I want to put on the table. And that is that, uh, and I'm not sure whether Professor Foley entirely agrees or disagrees with this final point, state police powers did not straightforwardly reject Blackstone's expansive conception in favor of a narrower, rights-based, negative liberty, life, liberty, and property conception. And here I take as my text uh, an excellent article published just two years ago by one Professor Randy Barnett entitled The Proper Scope of the Police Power. Uh, and here's what Professor Barnett has to say. The original meaning of the police power is notoriously hard to define for good reason. Until the 14th Amendment, it was simply that power contained in state constitutions which did not conflict with the powers delegated to the United States or prohibited by it to the states. Its scope was therefore a matter of textual interpretation and construction by state courts. The police power was typically construed to empower states to protect not only the health and safety of the general public, but its morals as well. Uh, and a wonderful summary of this complexity of the state police power uh, occurs in a Supreme Court case uh, called Mugler v. v. Kansas, uh, handed down in 17, 1787, which uh, Professor Foley also, also discusses in her in, in her, in her uh, book, to make a long story short, uh, Justice Harlan's majority opinion rejected a 14th Amendment challenge to the state of Kansas prohibition of manufacturing and selling alcohol on the ground that, quote, it cannot be supposed that the states intended by adopting that amendment to impose restraints upon the exercise of their powers for the protection of the safety, health, or morals of the 
community. And if time permitted, I would read wonderful passages uh, from this case where Justice Harlan summarizes the preceding 80 years of jurisprudence on the question of state police power to protect public morals. Uh, I conclude, therefore, that in fact the 14th Amendment did not mark a decisive turning point in the doctrine of state police powers. Uh, As Barnett notes, by this rationale, courts upheld the power of states to prohibit gambling, the consumption of alcohol, prostitution, doing business on the Sabbath, and other types of activities that manifestly did not violate the rights of others. Although the Lockean conception of the police power was advocated from the very inception of the 14th Amendment by commentators and jurists seeking to protect uh, natural liberty, the natural liberty rights to which it referred, other jurists and commentators claimed a broader power of states to legislate in the public interest. So to conclude, I think the historical record is a lot more complex on the question of state police powers, uh, on the appropriate scope of government, and on the theory of government that was operative in the United States at the time of the foundings. Uh, She is sure that some combination of John Locke and John Stuart Mill constitute the morality of American law. I believe that those sorts of thoughts were part of a complex weave uh, that generated not only the federal constitution, but most especially the state constitutions. And I would urge in this discussion uh, that we attend to the principles of federalism as one element in the American conception of limited government. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Bill, for those thoughtful remarks. Now, uh, Elizabeth will respond very briefly, and then we'll open it up. Oh, I wish I had more time, um, but I'll, I'll be brief. Um, one of the things that uh, that Bill does say uh, is that he, he clearly embraces the orthodox view that the Bill of Rights was not intended at all to apply to the states. And I have no debate uh, with the fact that that's the orthodox view. It's deeply entrenched. Uh, you learn it in law school. There is no question about that whatsoever. Certainly Chief Justice Marshall, in his opinion in Barron versus Baltimore, uh, was completely unequivocal about his conclusion with that regard. My book uh, severely criticizes the Barron v. Baltimore rationale and shows that it really is uh, uh, full of holes. But uh, let me specifically address something that Bill mentioned about Madison's fourth proposal. Uh, That was the uh, proposal that he had, uh, which basically said no state shall uh, violate uh, certain fundamental First Amendment rights or criminal trial by jury. And, of course, this language of Madison did, in fact, disappear. It didn't make it into sort of the final version of the Bill of Rights. Um, but we, what to make of that is a much more complex question. I mean, uh, there's an assumption that the disappearance of Madison's fourth proposal means that the Bill of Rights, without it, clearly was not intended to apply to the states. First of all, as a textual matter, if you look at the Bill of Rights, um, there is no uh, clear indication of which sovereign it applies to, the federal sovereign versus the state sovereign, other than the First Amendment, which specifically mentions Congress shall make no law, and the reexamination clause of the Seventh Amendment, which specifically mentions United States courts. 
So just as a textual matter, you could look at the Bill of Rights. Any ordinary American could pick up a copy of the Bill of Rights. And I think they would be uh, correct in their textual interpretation that would uh, suggest that they are applicable fully uh, to all sovereigns and are uh, rights uh, endowed uh, to all people. So uh, one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, the disappearance of Madison's fourth proposal could, for example, indicate that the framers of the Bill of Rights uh, didn't want to have a proposal that picked out just certain portions of the Bill of Rights and said no state shall. They could have instead uh, uh, have done what it seems they did do textually, which is to make those rights applicable to all, uh, regardless of the sovereignty violating, uh, the sovereign violating those rights. So even though it seems like uh, most people think the Barron v. Baltimore decision is common sense, uh, I think clearly there's an argument that can be made uh, the other way. My take on Barron v. Baltimore, by the way, is it was 1833. And uh, Chief Justice Marshall, more than anyone else, uh, was a strong Federalist. He wanted to keep the Union together. There was the hint of secession in the air. Uh, everyone knew that the Civil, uh, the Civil War was, uh, was a possibility. It was looming large. And he knew that if he made that Bill of Rights applicable to the states, if he went with a pure textualist interpretation of them, which as an originalist I think is a good idea, uh, if he went with that interpretation, then basically the southern states would quickly secede and we would no longer have a union. Uh, the other thing that uh, Bill mentioned is he uh, talked a, a little bit about uh, how he didn't think that the uh, federal government and the state governments rested on the same philosophical foundation. Uh, and he quoted James Wilson, who I think is one of the best framers of all. And uh, his quote from James Wilson uh, basically is simply telling us that uh, indeed, uh, there was a vision of state governments as having all the power um, except for what was explicit reta explicitly retained by the people that we didn't cede to the federal government. And the point that I make in the book with regard to this is that, in fact, the, the philosophy that drove uh, Amer the formation of American government was, in fact, the same. When you listen to the framers' debates about the formation of the United States government and the Bill of Rights, they talk generally about the purpose of government. They don't talk about the purpose of federal government. They clearly all believe that the purpose of all governments, and I have plenty of quotes in the footnotes of the books that show this, that in fact the purpose of government was protection of life, liberty, and property. And the point that I make in the book was that the debate over the Bill of Rights shows that the question was how to divide this governmental pie, not about the parameters of the pie itself, that they all agreed on the parameters of the pie as being government is limited to the protection of life, liberty, and property. And finally, with regard to the police power, of course, he quotes one of my favorite people, Randy Barnett, uh, uh, and that makes me a little bit nervous. But uh, one thing that I will say is that uh, Randy Barnett uh, didn't look at the same evidence that I did. He didn't purport to. And uh, when you quote the morals history of Justice Harlan, um, I think that you take it a little bit out of context. 
because all that history that Justice Harlan was referring to is a history of exercising the police power to prohibit things like pestilence, uh, threats to the health of the public, and nuisance laws. And nuisance laws inherently are based upon uh, a maxim sic utere tua, which basically means so use your own as not to injure others. Uh, all of this, what they called, they called nuisance laws laws morality-based laws. And to a certain extent, as I explained, you could consider nuisance laws to be morality-based laws. But morality-based in the sense that it's a harm principle that is the morality underlying the exercise of nuisance laws, not this public morality that, deri that uh, drives the debate on things like same-sex marriage and abortion. All right. With that, we will now open it up to questions. And if you could wait for the microphone to arrive right here, please, and identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have. Com. Yesterday I was in Philadelphia at the trial of the Child Online Protection Act challenging the constitutionality. That's the Internet censorship law with harmful to minors. I'm one of the plaintiffs. And this is a – I want to – can you hear me? A little bit. I'm, I'm having trouble hearing you. John. I'm one of the plaintiffs. Um, and this is about whether adults, when they speak on their own on the Internet, have a responsibility to use discretion to protect minors who might, in the theory of some people, be harmed by finding adult content. Uh, ultimately, that's what this law is about. And there's a lot of detail with the lawyers about what harmful to minors really means and who... There are a lot of legal concepts and the ambiguity of the law and the fear of, you know, you know, the chilling effect and that kind of thing is very much at issue. But still, there's also a question in my mind about personal autonomy and rationalism and ob ob objectivism. You know, one could make the argument. That do, you have since I was brought, do you have a question, sir? Okay, yeah. How do you feel about the issue that one could make the argument that if you were brought up by parents that you owe them or you owe other people's children some sort of discretion, you know, to pay them back for what was done for you, that could be seen as, as a harm-based argument. I think it could be seen that way, or it could be seen as a public moral argument. That kind of thinking could be seen either way, and that's underlying this case I was at yesterday. How do you feel about that? Well, there's a lot in that question, but I guess my, my first impression is that um, when it comes to minors, um, I think it's rather clear that my theory of, of the harm-based limitations on the exercise of governmental power are limited to competent adults. And I think they have to be, uh, just pragmatically, because one of the principal tenets of law is that minors, by definition, are incompetent to make their own decisions, to protect themselves. And therefore, we give that primary responsibility to the parents. And if the parents aren't doing their proper job, then by default, perhaps, to the states in certain uh, extreme circumstances. So um, when a law is passed with the goal of protecting minors, then I think that the government, in balancing individual adult competent adults' autonomy versus its desire to sort of be in the patrins patri role of protecting minors is, in fact, ineluctably going to be balancing. <laughs> uh, 
in other words, on the one hand, you've got the right of a competent adult to say what they want to say and see what they want to see on the Internet or anywhere else. And on the other hand, the government does have a legitimate power acting paternalistically to protect minors to, to do whatever they think they need to protect them. Now, personally, I would look at any uh, uh, piece of legislation designed to protect minors and put the burden on the government to prove that, in fact, they need to do what they are doing in order to protect minors. That's generally the opposite of the presumption that applies today. But still, the bottom line is, because you have an autonomy of an adult to do what they want to do, you have to balance that out against the legitimately protective role that we have towards minors. It's not an easy balance to draw. Thank you. I'm Laurie Littman-Brown with the Secular Coalition for America. In practice, this may not matter because we now have the 14th Amendment, but historically, how do we reconcile the use of the term Congress in the First Amendment, along with what Mr. Galston said about Massachusetts' original um, Constitution, with Thomas Jefferson's statement in his letter to the Baptists that the Establishment Clause means a separation of church and state? Well, I mean, for me as an originalist, I mean, the, the, the First Amendment, qua First Amendment, without um, getting into the consideration of the 14th Amendment's incorporation, <laughs> um, means what it says and says what it means. Congress shall make no law. Uh, and until, in fact, the 14th Amendment came along, and I think through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, incorporated whole hog uh, the Bill of Rights, um, the First Amendment meant what it said, and it said what it meant. Next, uh, Eric. Thank you. Eric Sterling from the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. Um, I'm curious how you would interpret uh, this situation. Um, there are initiatives on the ballot in uh, Colorado and Nevada this election to uh, legalize marijuana for adults. Um, assume for a moment that they don't win, that, um, let's say, f only 45% of the voters approve those provisions. At what point does, does the criminal law lose its validity because there's no longer a consensus that a particular kind of conduct um, is wrong or uh, ought to be unlawful? That when a substantial minority says this should no longer be prohibited, hasn't the moral consensus been lost, and I'm curious how, the, you know, you know, you know, what justify, you know, or is it? Can it be the case that we that a simple majority can punish a minority, um, you know, under our, under our constitutional framework? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, first of all, I guess you you highlight what I think is the inherent problem with basing our justification for the existence of laws on majoritarian notions of morality, right? To me, criminal law derives its legitimacy, all of law, tort law as well, contract law, uh, from uh, a universal norm which I identify as the harm principle. Uh, and I think that there's plenty of history that uh, shows 
that the harm principle was relatively well-known and uh, defined without taking into account the later philosopher John Stuart Mill, uh, that there was, in fact, a great embrace of the Lockean uh, philosophy. And uh, it seems to me that when you have a proliferation of public moralitarian majority-based uh, laws, law itself tends to lose its legitimacy over time as those uh, political majorities shift and change. And I think that's a real shame. I mean, we have so many sort of blue laws on the books that are uh, not enforced or under-enforced because there is this strong minority or perhaps even majoritarian sort of opposition to the principles that they espouse that I think that that sort of undermines law itself. And if we could get rid of those types of laws and focus our uh, governmental power on uh, where we're the strongest, uh, then the rule of law itself would be much more respected. Uh, I'm going to jump in here with a question uh, for Bill. Um, Bill, you cited Mugler v. Kansas, not one of our favorite opinions here. And uh, I want to ask you if you think that it was, with its expansive reading of the police power, uh, rightly decided um, after the 14th Amendment was ratified That's an interesting question. That's why I asked and, it. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, the, if the question is, uh, let's, you know, let, let's, for the sake of argument, this is, you know, I'm now thinking on my feet. Good. This is not a question that I've ever thought about before. We won't hold you to it. Uh, it seems to me that if one takes a sort of a full incorporationist view, right? Let's 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 take that as 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 the basis of the of, of the discussion. Then the judicial test becomes the following: Is a particular action by a state a violation of any of the rights in the Bill of Rights as applied to the states through the Fourteenth the Fourteenth Amendment? Uh, and now let's apply let's apply that reasoning to Mugler, okay? Where the issue to repeat was a fairly early form of uh, early version of of prohibition. As I think about the application of the Bill of Rights to the states, I have to say, and per, since you've thought about this case more than I have, maybe you can educate me. Is there anything in a state law prohibiting al alcoholic beverages, per se, uh, that should be interpreted as a violation of any one of the rights in the Bill of Rights? That, I think, is the question. Uh, and I have to say it's not clear to me that the answer to that question is in the affirmative. Now, I can take particular pieces of the question and perhaps apply... Uh, apply the Fifth Amendment. So, for for example, uh, prohibiting you know prohibiting what is an ongoing commercial activity might very well be regarded as as a taking. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, at least one could argue that point. Although it's not it, it's not absolutely clear to me that you know, one would get to the end of that road. 
Uh, but other forms, other pro- forms of prohibition having to do with consumption rather than production don't seem to me clearly to run afoul of the Fifth Amendment. So that's the way I'd reason about your question. And uh, Well, I, I'm just to give you a quick short answer. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that if the federal government could not post or before the um, 14th Amendment prohibit alcoholic beverages and indeed did not do so except for the 18th Amendment, then uh, the protections vis-a-vis the federal government that were incorporated by the amendment would now be incorporated as against the states. seems no, to I, me that's a... I don't think that's... You know, I that don't, way it's, it saves us having to go back to the scope of the police power. I don't think that's a logically compelling argument. Can Be- I offer another another take on it, too? I mean, to me, this whole debate uh, is forgetting all about the Ninth Amendment. Uh, and, and really a central part of my thesis is what does the Ninth Amendment mean? Because the reason it has been completely disregarded, like it doesn't even exist, is because nobody can figure out what to make of it and how to interpret it. But if you look at the Ninth Amendment as a principle of residual individual sovereignty, and you understand what sovereignty meant to the framers, you see that the Ninth Amendment stands for textually an embodiment of the harm principle in American law. And so we don't have to really decide whether the Fifth Amendment's takings clause has anything to do with alcohol prohibition. It's clearly part of one of those residual rights uh, retained by the people under the Ninth Amendment. Vis-a-vis the federal government. And incorporated to the states via the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th. But that's the, but the reason, the, the reason I was dissenting, Roger, is that it seems, it, it seems to me that there are multiple kinds of restraints on the federal government, multiple kinds of constitutional restraints, one of which has to do with the question of what kinds of powers are delegated to the federal constitution, an issue that may or may not implicate questions of rights. True. Right. And therefore, it might well be the case, logically speaking, that although the power to prohibit alcoholic beverages was not delegated to it uh, was not delegated by the people to the federal government. It could nonetheless have been, you know, nonetheless have been delegated by the people to the governments of at least some of the states. And then, it, then there's a second level inquiry as to whether the whether the fact that the states or many of them believed that they had under the police power the right to engage in in, in you know, in, in prohibition of alcoholic beverages, did or did not run afoul of uh, some deeper notion of sovereignty or, or rights. I am less sure that than Professor Foley is that we can simply take you know, Grotius or Puffendorf's concept of sovereignty and read it into the underlying deep moral theory of the Ninth Amendment. But I agree with her that the Ninth Amendment is not an inkblot. It is not a dead letter. Uh, I, you know, wherever else we may disagree, we, we unite in our high regard for Professor Barnett's scholarship on the Ninth Amendment, which has done so much to restore serious inquiry into the substantive meaning of it. But I think that that inquiry is a good deal less doctrinal and more open-ended than the simple invocation of the idea of sovereignty would suggest. Well, then you will be happy to know that Randy Barnett... Um 
has a new article coming out. He advised me on Sunday. He was just wrapping up the last stages of the proofs in the Texas Law Review in which he unearths historical evidence that makes the case even more strongly than he has made it to date that the Ninth Amendment is, as Professor Foley says it is, and so you need to look for that article forthcoming in the Texas Law Review from Randy Barnett for the definitive answer to your question, in which we we will all be libertarians. We have now uh, come to the end of our uh, program. Let's uh, have a warm round of applause for our guests. Again... The book is available for purchase outside. Elizabeth will be glad to sign it for you. And do please join us for lunch upstairs. Yes. Thanks. Sure thing. Bill, those are very good comments. I've got to tell you, uh, you brought forth some things that I was unaware of with respect to the Massachusetts Constitution. I did oh, not know that it was, splendid reading. I did not know that it was that. Thank <laughs> you.